Hello and welcome to Shaping Success, a brand new and very exciting podcast from Simply Be, all about women at the top of their game with me, Fleur East. As a singer and broadcaster, I'm inspired by women who push boundaries, women who have carved a different path to society's stereotypes, women who refuse to fit in. And I want to find out who and what shaped their journey to success. So in this podcast series, I'm joined by female icons from all walks of life to talk about their inspirations, heroes, and the moments that change them. We'll hear from some of the biggest female names and the ones you might know less about as they share their remarkable stories of determination and dedication and reveal the moments and icons that have shaped them along the way. Ultimately, our guests all have one thing in common. They're killing it. So let's meet them. Today, I'm joined by Britain's best-known GP. As arguably the country's favourite medic, she's one of the resident doctors on ITV's This Morning, has featured as an expert on the BBC's The One Show, Horizon, and Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, all whilst being a practising GP. Now a published author and podcast host, Dr Zoe Williams makes the confusing world of medicine approachable and has become somewhat of a specialist in debunking the myths that surround it. She also happens to be a very dear friend of mine. So I'm really excited about today's episode. Welcome to Shaping Success, Dr. Zoe Williams. Yay, thank you. Oh, that was nice to what hear treat. that. What a treat. What a treat. We get to spend a little bit of time. This is the only way I can actually have a whole half an hour yeah, or no. more of your time lately. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what's quite nice though about that intro is that when you're going through the motions mm. and you're doing so many things in your career, you very rarely look back on all the things you've achieved. It's true. So hearing that intro, you must be like, oh, yeah. You're true. I think we do that, don't we? We're constantly on this conveyor belt of what's next, what's next, what's, what's next. And it's very rare, actually, that we just stop and reflect and take stock and think, oh, okay. Do you know what sounded really good, particularly good? Mm. Published author, because yeah. that's... You know, that's the one that I think I never thought I'd write a book. So thank you for that. Of course. I mean, we're going to get into all of that because that's one of your more recent achievements. Yeah. But firstly, we all know you as Dr. Zoe. Yeah. How did you even get into medicine in the first place? Oh, gosh. Um, Where did well, it all begin? Well, most people do their GCSEs, don't they? Then mm. their A-levels, then they go to medical school. Not me. I knew I wanted to be a doctor from the age of three. Um, really? Yeah. So my Jamaican grandma was a midwife. And for my third birthday, she bought me like the little doctor's medical kit with the Aww. plastic stethoscope mm -hmm. and a little nurse's outfit. And I loved it. It's my favourite toy. So she said to me sort of quite proudly, oh, when you grow up, are you going to be a midwife like me? To which I apparently stamped my feet and said, no. So my mum said, are you going to be a nurse? And I stamped my feet and said, no, I'm going to be a doctor. And ah. I... <laughs> I love that, at, at the age, age of three. three. With my little pigtails. But I think actually, from that moment forwards, I can't really think there was anything else I ever wanted to do, except I used to also want to be a dancer on top of the pops, but. What? <laughs> Sorry, you wanted to be a doctor and then you wanted to be a dancer on top of the pops. Yeah, we used to watch Top of the Pops on, was it on a Friday night. Yeah. And I used to watch the dancers performing, which would now be like your backing dancers when you're on stage. Yeah. And I just used to think that looks like such fun. I'd like to do that. But anyway, that one didn't happen, but the doctor thing did. But my journey was a bit of a, possibly to this day, might be the only person that did it the way I did. So mm. I did my A-levels. My results for my A-levels were B, C, E. So 
Never going to get into medical school with that. And that's because my life got turned a bit upside down when I was doing my A-levels. Things were a bit disruptive. I left home and was working three jobs and lots of stuff going on. So following that, I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I spent three years out of education, lived in Tenerife, working in a bar. Wow. I was a landscape gardener. I sold double glazing. Sorry? You were a landscape gardener? I was a landscape gardener for a year. Yeah, I used to go and do block paving. I was actually block paving people's drives and building fences. What? Um, it was great fun, actually, for a year, but not a career for me forever. And then I went and lived in Ayanapa for a year. And it was in Ayanapa that I kind of, I've been through a bit of a rough time and it's like I kind of reconnected with myself I was reborn in Ayanapa but but it was then I thought do you know what I do want to be a doctor what can I do or how can I get as close as possible to that so went around different universities and at Newcastle University I could study biomedical sciences in the medical school even though it wasn't medicine I would mm. study it in the medical school and there was just something about that that really enticed me because I, I was as close to medicine as I could be. So that's why I went there. And then a few weeks into the degree course, the lecturer said, we recognise that there are people in this room who would make great doctors, but either they haven't passed exams, haven't passed an interview, mm -hmm. something's happened in life, they've been unwell. So we're the first university to ever do this and we might never do it again, but we're going to allow, I think about 200 of us on the course, we're going to allow six people from this room to progress to study in medicine next year and it'll mean going back into first year. So there were all these various things we had to do. We had to get a first in all of the modules in semester one, then do an essay application. Yeah. Then they interviewed 12 of us for the six places, but only offered two of us a place. And that was conditional on getting a first in all of the modules in semester two. And I was the only one that did. So that was out of everybody. That's how I managed to pretty much crowbar my way into, into medical school. and. Yeah, it turned out all right. <laughs> Whoa. It kind of like fell into your lap almost, like that opportunity, right? Because you're yeah. probably like, I'm counted out completely now. Exactly. And this is why I do quite a lot of work with, with young people and young people from backgrounds where or have challenging lives where they don't aim high, they don't set their aspirations high because they're told or led to believe that they can't achieve great things mm. and actually I was at school when I was in year nine I went to school in quite a deprived area in a town where we have mass unemployment and lots of challenges and and when I was choosing my options and my teachers said well, what do you want to be when you grow up and I said a doctor with good intentions they actually said well you should come up with some more realistic achievable goals so that you don't end up disappointed oh, really? um, so I turned that on its head and I think every child should be told yes, you can do whatever mm. you want to do if you're willing to work hard enough. But you've also got it as well as working hard, you've got to be constantly looking for those opportunities because I believe we all get opportunities, but a lot of them pass us by without us noticing them. Mm. So you've got to look for them and create them when you can. And depending who you are, based on your gender or your sexuality or ethnicity, your age, some people are more likely to have doors flung open for them mm -hmm. and some people are more likely to have doors slammed in their face. And I always say, if somebody slams a door in your face, that's not a no, that's a maybe. You've got to go around the side, see if there's a window that's slightly ajar and you might just be able to wiggle your way in. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, it was an opportunity. It was a small chance to get into medicine and, and I took it. And there were similar opportunities, I think, that I took for getting into TV and some of the other things that I've done as well where I've had to sort of 
wiggle an opportunity out of something. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the next thing I was going to get onto. How do you go from being a doctor yeah. to then going on TV? How did that even happen? <laughs> so my first experience of being on TV wasn't as a TV doctor. It was when I was a gladiator. Gladiators. <laughs> oh my gosh, you were Amazon. I was Amazon. And I st honestly, I'm still like, did that actually happen or was it a dream? But it did happen. So that again was an opportunity. So I applied to be a contestant when Gladiators came back mm. on our screens on Sky, went to the audition and they said, can you come back next week to audition to be one of our new Gladiators? Which I did. And then a couple of months later, I found out that they'd selected me and we trained for a couple of weeks and then we filmed for a few weeks and it was kind of all done and dusted within a few weeks. It was this amazing, incredible like flash of a moment in my life mm. and then that was the end of the series and we all sort of went back to our lives and then they didn't make any more series after that so I just got the one series but again I was told by my consultants I was working with at the time because I was two years out of medical well a year and a bit out of medical school mm. in my second year I was told by some of the consultants you shouldn't do that if you do that you'll never be respected or taken seriously yeah. as a doctor you know you're on this out of my year group within medicine my exam results had managed to pass in the top five percent so I'd mm. had complete choice of which hospitals I went to which modules I did so they were like you're going to lose all that um so again I was told that I shouldn't do it but I did it anyway and I'm so <laughs> glad I did <laughs> and I, my career hasn't suffered obviously because of it so that was that so it's following that that I decided actually I do want to explore potentially a tv career as a medic mm. so Decided to become a GP because that would give me a bit more flexibility. Decided to move to London to do my GP training and tried to make it happen for about six months. Had lots of meetings, you know, loads of meetings with the BBC. We made taster tapes. They auditioned me for a new show which was coming out called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, mm -hmm. but then didn't choose me. They selected four of the doctors. And I was like, okay, fine, maybe this, maybe this isn't for me. You know, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. So focused on my medical career and sort of developed my special interests within the field of physical activity and lifestyle. And then a couple of years later, again, like sometimes I think, is it our destiny? Hmm. Is it written in the stars? Because two different things happen within a week of each other. The first one was I was seeing a patient and her daughter worked on this morning. So she was saying, it was actually the patient was actually a child and it was the grandmother. And the grandmother said, oh, I'm looking after him because my daughter works in TV. I said, what does she do? Well, she's a producer on This Morning. All right. And <laughs> she was walking out the door. I was like, by the way, if your daughter's ever looking for new doctors for This Morning, I'd be interested. So that was Emma. Wow. Then got in touch. I went in for a meeting, met the boss who put me on the show. And that's how that started. But that same week, I got a phone call from some producers at the BBC who'd seen these taster tapes that I'd made ages ago and they were making a documentary about the science of hair. Ah. Uh, somebody had said, what about that doctor with the afro from those tapes? <laughs> so they got in touch and they offered me a role to be one of four presenters to present this Horizon documentary. And then from there, trust me, I'm a doctor, this show, they invited me to be part of the lineup. They made it five and they'd said that Ooh. the reason they hadn't put me on the on the lineup in the first place because I was, I was still a trainee GP, not fully qualified. She kept it to remind so I took that as a bit of a knock when they didn't choose me, but it was actually, they said we would have chosen you originally, yeah. but you weren't a fully qualified GP and now you are. We want you. And they happened within a week of each other. It was so bizarre. That is really weird. 
but also not a standard trajectory I don't no. think in anyone's career like you know firstly all the jobs you were doing <laughs> before you even got the chance to study medicine I know I mean landscape gardening um, working in a bar yeah and then you're in Ionapa and then you get offered this opportunity to, to study medicine and don't forget they're selling double glazing because I tell you what <laughs> I think all of those jobs in one way or another have helped because one of the most important skills you have as a doctor, especially as a GP, is communication skills and listening. Mm. And if you're going to sell somebody double glazing, you've got to be able to communicate pretty well. And you've yeah. got to be able to listen well as well because it's those fine little cues they give that make you go, oh, well, would you like some guttering then if your windows are done, you know? <laughs> I cannot remember. Do you know all I'm thinking of when you're saying double glazing is that advert? You buy one, you get yeah. one free. I said, you buy one. <laughs> and that's you, like, knocking on someone's door. Literally. Trying to sell them double glazing. Literally, that is me. And because I'm from Burnley, I'm sure the guy who does that advert yeah. is from Burnley. And my accent's changed a bit over the years. But I think that probably, yeah, you buy one, you get one free. You buy one, you get one free. That was you. <laughs> that was me. And now look at you. Look where you are now. It's that all is helped. so funny. How did you ever think, though, that it was possible that you could be a qualified GP and then also have like, a successful TV career alongside that? What made you kind of see that as a possibility? Because um, like people were saying in your field, like, oh, no, don't do TV. Yeah. Never going to be taken seriously. I guess I never thought that it wasn't possible. Mm. I think the reason I, because I did want to become a dermatologist um, originally, but the reason, when I did Gladiators, it only took three months. We filmed one series and then that was that. So I had, because I had to take a year out of my training as a junior doctor, I had to take a full year out of training because that's the way it works. You're on a training programme. Mm. So whilst I could have still worked for as a doctor in those nine months, I actually thought to myself, look, I'm going to be a doctor for the rest of my life. That's all I've ever wanted to do. That's the most important bit of it all. It's not just what I do, it's who I am. But I've got nine months here to play around with. Mm. And there's lots of other things that by this point I thought it'd be quite nice to do. So I spent that nine months. I set up a fitness company in a park with a mate in Newcastle. <laughs> and I started going into schools. And what's now my charity back then, um, schools were paying me to go into schools and educate young people about health and fitness and nutrition, etc. So I thought, yeah, you know, I can I can do that for those nine months mm. and then just slot back into the training programme, which is what I did. But it got me thinking, as a GP, actually, and this is what I say to other medical students, junior doctors now, you can do anything you want, literally. Like, you know, seeing patients and the clinical stuff is a core part of what we do. But especially, I think, now the pressures that GPs are under and a five-day working week in clinical mm. practice is just not what young GPs want to do because... It's so hard. I always say to them, you know, think of what you'd do for free. What's the job you would do for free or you would even pay to do? You know, is it exploring? Is it photography? Is it food? Is it travel? And actually, if you just start doing it, but through the eyes of a doctor and sharing that with the world, because mm. it's quite niche that you're a doctor doing it, people are interested and you can make a career out of it. And I've got friends who... I've done all sorts of stuff, you know, from working on cruise ships as a doctor to being explorers and going to the Antarctic and, you know, being the support medical team when people are doing those trips. I think that's one of the beautiful things about being a doctor is you're still a human being as well and you still have interests, but you can make it a part of your work. But how did you balance the two? Because the first thing I'm thinking, and when you spoke about your peers going, you can't do that, no one's going to take you seriously, yeah. is, for example, say I booked in to do my smear test, right, yeah. and I walk in, and it's 
Dr. Zoe off this morning. <laughs> what? Like, have you had moments like that where yeah. people are just chatting to you about TV stuff you've done? Yeah, but I think <laughs> the reality of it is where I work, I think quite a few of the patients now know that I'm there. I've had one scenario, only one scenario ever where a patient walked in and was a little bit starstruck and said, actually, I feel a bit uncomfortable. And that, that's absolutely fine. Oh, really? What we can do is just swap with another doctor, swap a patient, because that's really important. That's only happened once. I've had a few instances where there was one patient I remember in particular where it was the whole antibiotics battle, which is something that we often have as GPs, where the patient comes in and they've got a viral illness, mm -hmm. but they feel they need antibiotics and our job is to you know come to a conclusion that everyone's happy with which ideally should be that they don't have antibiotics and I remember she said to me if this was any other doctor I would be arguing for those antibiotics right now but because you're on tv you must be right and really good so really I was like, I'm not better than any one of my colleagues at my job but I was just like okay I'll take it that makes my life easier but yeah sometimes they come in and they say oh you're that doctor off the tv but I think especially in today's climate it's so difficult to get a GP appointment. Patients are very aware that they have 10 minutes and that clock is ticking. And often by the time they're sat in front of me, they're like, oh, you're that doctor off the TV. Boom, let's move on. Let's get on with right, it. Which yeah. is a relief to me because I'm also like, that clock is ticking and, you know, it's much more important we talk about the reason you're here. It's really interesting learning all the things that you did leading up to this point and how you were a gladiator, <laughs> a GP, now a TV doctor author. What you actually might not have told many people though is that being a gladiator shaped you in many ways, but you actually played rugby yeah. for like 10 years. Yeah. So how has that shaped you as a person? Because what? That has really shaped me as a person. I think I'd always been quite active mm. from being relatively young. And that was kind of thanks to my paediatrician, Dr Thistlethwaite, who encouraged my mum. I had really severe asthma as a child, so he encouraged my mum to get me into physical activity. So when I went to uni, I was 21 as a mature student, I wanted to join a sports club and I'd never touched a rugby ball. I knew nothing about rugby, so I was drawn towards netball. So I started going to all these netball trials and there's hundreds of girls showing up and it's the existing netball team that are marking you on a bit of paper and mm. these 18, 19 year olds telling me that I'm this, that and the other. I kind of was already falling out of love with it before it started. I think I made it onto the third team or something. So as you do at uni, Wednesday afternoon, we all went to the sports student sports bar mm -hmm. and we were sat there having a glass of wine and this massive group of girls came barging through the door, all in fancy dress, dressed up as Lara Croft, commando <laughs> rolling, with fake guns that were full of gin, squirting at each other's mouths and right. downing pints. And I was just like, who are they? And the girls were like, oh, it's the women's rugby team. Anyway, that was me off. Never played netball. Well, I did play netball again, but for the women's rugby team. So I went straight away to I love the how captain. That inspired you. That's amazing. <laughs> but rugby was amazing for me, and I think I think one of the one of the things I talk about quite a lot in my book is around body confidence and viewing our bodies for the incredible, amazing things that they do, mm. rather than how they look. And you know, obviously, we've grown up in an era where we've been fed what is the ideal body shape and size, yeah. which actually is constantly changing anyway. But there was one moment where, I mean, I was always very shy about my body. Like I wouldn't even let my mum see me naked. So the first competitive game of rugby I played for Newcastle University, for days before I'd been worrying about it, thinking what's gonna happen in the showers? Cause we're all gonna be covered in mud. Right. 
are people going to wear swimsuits, bikinis, just wear their knickers? Are they going to be naked? So I sort of took all the various different options so that I could just see what happens and conform. Um, so we'd won this game. We went into the changing rooms. We were singing songs and everyone just stripped off naked and got in the showers. And I sort of looked around and thought, right, well, look at my body. There are boobs that are bigger than mine, smaller than mine, mm. perter than mine, droopier than mine. Pubic hair, some have none, some have full brush, some have everything in between. Girls of all different shapes and sizes and nobody cares. And I thought, what is my problem? Why mm. I've been so hung up about it? And I looked around me at these girls who were all different shapes and sizes and thought, if she didn't have that body type, she wouldn't be able to drive that scrum in the way she does. Mm. If she didn't have that body type, she wouldn't be able to run so fast and have scored those three tries. If she didn't have that body type where she's kind of short, she wouldn't have been able to get into that rook. And I just thought, wow, our bodies are amazing. And I admire all these incredible women around me for what their bodies do. It's got nothing to do with how their bodies look. And it completely changed, changed that for me to this day forward. So I share quite a bit of that in my book. And I think, you know, we're so obsessed with what our bodies look like. And it doesn't really matter what our bodies look like. It matters what they do. Well, yeah, I was gonna ask you about that actually. So your book, You Grow Girl. You Grow Girl. <laughs> is a guide for young girls <laughs> through puberty yeah. and body changes. And yeah. you just touched on it there that you feel that people, well, women in particular, are more focused on what their bodies can do as opposed to what they look like. Do you think that women's attitudes to their shape and their body has changed a lot in recent years? I think it's changing. I think we are now in this era of body confidence, but I still feel that that is, the conversation is around what our bodies look like. We're sort of saying it doesn't matter what your body looks like, yeah. we should still celebrate them. Mm. It's like, we shouldn't even be focusing on what they look like. We should be focusing on what they can do. You know, if that person can, I don't know, balance really well or that person can do this or that person can do that and I think I was reading something the other day researching for an article I was writing and I was reading about diet culture mm. and the first people to really have diet culture were the ancient Greeks and they were the first you know they developed the Olympics and all of that mm. and they were the first ones to diet but dieting back then was not about what their bodies looked like it was about altering their bodies so that they could throw something further so or run perform. faster, all about performance. So actually that's how diets came about to aid performance. But now mm. you talk to 100 people about what's a diet for, they'll all say it's about losing weight probably. Not all, but the majority. Mm. That's really interesting. Mm. So interesting. And talking to you about rugby, I mean, I'm, I'm still blown away. You would you be brilliant rugby at rugby. You would be brilliant at it. I mean, Just because you're good at everything. <laughs> And you've got no fear. <laughs> but it's it's interesting hearing how that shaped you and not many people know about that. Yeah. Is there is there another moment in your life that you can think of that maybe wasn't as positive, maybe a negative moment in your life that you think has equally shaped you or had a big impact on you? Yeah. It was probably a breakup mm. when I was 20 years old. So it was my first major, major, major heartbreak. You know, sometimes they say you've actually got to really reach a low place to completely change and overhaul your life and I think when I was 20 that was when I hit my major major low um, so I was in this relationship that really wasn't good I'd moved out of home my mum had real problems with alcohol addictions you know that was at its peak I wasn't at medical school like I wanted to be and I felt really really lost I was actually taking antidepressants and you know I've been diagnosed with depression by my doctor so it was the breakup that was the final straw that was just like this is not, I can't cope. I don't know what to do. I was completely stuck. Yeah. And my friend Joe from Burnley, 
bless her, <laughs> was going to Ayanapa with her friend. And she basically said, I'm not leaving without you because you're not in a good place. So I went with them for two weeks in Ayanapa. And at the start of the second week, I was in a nightclub in the loo. We'd met these lovely girls from Jersey. One of them was called Kim. And their plans were to, they were on a two-week holiday like us, but they were staying afterwards. They were going to stay and work there for the season. So I've been telling her all about this relationship and stuff. And she's like, don't go home. Just stay. Stay with us. I was like, yeah, all right, then I will do. But it was like when you've had a few drinks, the Mm. next day I was like, that was a funny conversation. But on the Saturday morning, when the coach came to pick us up to take us to the airport, there she was. She's like, right, I've got your bags. Are you coming? And I was like... And I stayed for 10 months, which turned out to be the best thing. I honestly do not think I would have become a doctor had I not stayed in Ayanapa for the summer and healed and refound myself. Wow. So. See, that sentence to a lot of people wouldn't make sense. I, know. I don't think I would become a doctor if I didn't stay in Ayanapa for 10 months. <laughs> I know. If you're in Ayanapa, stay in Ayanapa. Stay there. Stay a bit there. longer. It might just be the most important thing you ever do for your life and career. Wow. Thank goodness for Joe in Burnley. I know. <laughs> Speaking of Joe in Burnley. Oh, she's lovely. Uh, what are the people in your life? Say hello to Joe in Burnley for Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe in Burnley. She'll love that. <laughs> what are the people along the way? Because, I mean, we are not who we are without the people, right, that yeah. have impacted us along the way. Yeah. Can you think of one person in your circle or someone you grew up with, someone you know personally, who helped shape you? I've got to say my mum. Mm. Um Again, you know, I talk about it in the book. I grew up in a place where people didn't really have high aspirations and where people, you know, as a mixed race girl, the only black girl at my school, in an area of deprivation, single parent family, Mm -hmm. you know, we were reliant upon benefits. Nobody in my family had ever been to university before. Me saying I wanted to be a doctor. It's not surprising, I guess, that people thought that that wasn't realistic but my mum always said yes you can and to this day that's my own affirmation Mm. um whatever I said I wanted to do she'd always say yes you can and I remember when I was finishing primary school and because you know academically I was able to to pass exams she wanted me to do the 11 plus exam Mm. and go to the grammar school which was in the next town and and I didn't want to go. I just wanted to go where my friends are. And she always said, she always supported me. She always says, right, well, you do what you want to do. Just promise me you'll work as hard as you can and you do the best that you can, you know, so that you can go on and do what you want to do and be anything you want to be. Mm. So I was a really, really, really shy child, very clingy, didn't have any confidence and didn't think I could do anything. There used to be this mm. duck on TV called Orville the Duck. You're too young. Do you remember okay, it? Yeah. You're too Very young. Clean. Don't pretend you remember. No, no, I remember Orville the Duck. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I know about the duck. And this duck used to always say, I wish I could fly high up in the sky, but I can't. And somebody else went, you can. And he went, I can't. So my brother used to always call me Orville the Duck because that was just my thing. Mm. I just always say, I can't, I can't. And my mum was always like, yes, you can. So I think it's her as well. She was a real role model as well. The most important thing she taught me was how to feel love. Like she just really helped me understand the word Mm. love, what it is to be loved, what it is to love. And yeah, so I would say my mum. What I find funny is that as you were talking, I could relate to so many things you were saying because when I was growing up, I was a very shy kid as well. I never believed that I could do anything. And funnily enough, my dad was always the one saying, yes, you can, yes, you can. 
And what I've drawn from that comparison is that we're sitting here today and we just mentioned at the start of this conversation how many hats we wear yeah. and all the different things that we do yeah. and all the different careers that we, yeah. that we manage and we balance. Yeah. And I think that all stems from having a parent that told us from very early on, yes, you can. Yeah. So we've never limited ourselves yeah. as a result of that. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. you can be a gladiator, you can be a GP, it's been you drilled, can be on the it's been TV. Drilled in, it's been drilled into us that whatever, however wild or crazy it might seem, oh, that's all right. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you can. And I think it's that, you know, those early years are so important in shaping mm. you, aren't they? And I think I would say that even when I got to around, you know, late teens, I still wasn't a conf I still don't think, I I'm still not a confident person. Shh, don't tell anyone. But <laughs> Really? I'm terrified every time I go in this morning. Mm. I sit there before it comes on to me and I do I use my little mantra. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. It's weird. Some days I don't feel nervous, but some days I'm terrified. So I think I still like confidence, but I've learned how to appear confident. Mm. And by appearing confident, it makes me actually genuinely feel more confident. So I think it starts off as a bit of an act, a bit of a show. Mm. Like a fake it till that, you make it kind exactly, of Exactly, but that transforms into into reality. And gladiators taught me that. This is another thing. I keep saying <laughs> Another thing I talk about in the book. <laughs> <laughs> but that shows that it's real. It's like yeah, a real well, it experience. Is, it is. It's all, all of it stems from real yeah. experiences. But I have these little doctors always prescriptions in the book. And one of them is pull a power pose. And that came from the very first show of when I did gladiators. Mm. And there I was covered in sequins um, <laughs> at the top of the pyramid, looking down at this contestant. And I'm frightened of heights. And when I looked down at my feet, we were actually stood on these planks that had gaps through them. You could see right down to oh the floor. My. So once I'd seen that, I was so nervous. We had a live audience. I'd never done TV before. My knees were actually knocking each other. I was shaking. And then the floor director said, Amazon, pose one to camera four. So my first pose is kind of like this, like sort of regal pose. So I did that. Pose number two to camera. So these choreographed poses mm. that as a gladiator make you look sort of strong and like you puff your chest out. So by, once I'd done a series of these, I thought, hang on, my legs have stopped shaking. I'm feeling more confident. I'm feeling like I've got this. Mm. So I actually made the conscious decision to like hold on to this feeling right now, hold on to what you've got right now, because you're Amazon, you're not Zoe, you're Amazon. And, and there is research to say that the way we approach the world with our physical bodies can alter the way we think and feel. So the little activity in the book is I asked the girls to give themselves a pretend gladiator name right. and then embody that gladiator and create their own gladiator pose and make sure that you know your chest digs up, your chin should be up. And the next time you feel that you need a little boost of confidence, remind yourself of the name and just shift slightly in the direction of that pose and embody that. I think it's just a great analogy to have in your mind because I feel similar to you and I feel like a lot of people stop themselves from, from achieving what they really want to achieve because of this voice of doubt or because they have this... I don't know, this block, like something telling them they can't do it. It's another thing I write about in the book. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Funny enough. But it works. Like it having does. that alter ego. It does. And you need, it's, you know, it's Sasha Fierce, isn't it? Yeah. It's like that Beyonce has Sasha Fierce. And, you know, so even Beyonce needs. Even Beyonce needs an alter, an alter ego. ego. I think our own biggest enemy for most of us and the thing that will hold us back more than anything is ourselves mm. and that fear of failure and thinking that we're not good enough. And yeah, we're both sat here as 
we were little girls who lacked confidence, yeah. who were very, very shy, who constantly believed we couldn't do stuff. Mm -hmm. And we both luckily had that parent in our life that has kind of just drilled it into us that you can do what you want. And we're sat here today having, you know, done the things that we wanted to do, saying to everybody else out there, you can too. Mm. You've just got to believe. But outside of the people in, in our own circles, there are always others that we can look up to and kind of aspire to be. Mm. Is there anybody that you've looked up to or someone who's like, yeah, she's like my idol or an icon that you aspire to be like? I think the person I'm going to say is Oprah. Oh, great one. Yes, we why used to, Oprah? We used to call her Oprah Winfrey, right? Yeah. But now she's just Oprah, which is a sign of how amazing she is. And I think that's because she, you know that saying, you can't be it if you can't see it. Mm, yeah. Well, she broke that mould, didn't she? Because she didn't see it. She was the first. Yeah. She was the first black TV personality to be prime, prime, prime time yeah. number one. Mm -hmm. And she didn't have role models. You know, she carved that path for herself. And I think that's what she showed me. I think when I was being told by my teachers, you know, you can't be a doctor because people like you don't become doctors. I had lots of doctors in my life because I was an ill child. So, mm. but all of my doctors actually were, were male. And I definitely had never met a black female doctor. So I think Oprah, there's probably something there that Oprah showed me you don't need to be able to see it to be it. You can just be it. You can mm. carve your own path. And I definitely wasn't the first black do female doctor, but I'd never really had any interactions yeah. or role models. So I think she showed me that. She showed me you can be, you can just carve your own way. You don't have to wait for other people to follow. She's just incredible, isn't she? She is. That was a great answer. I think when you say, you know, you set yourself, we're always setting ourselves goals and aspirations. And one of mine is to just meet her. Oh, so, yeah. Oprah, if you're watching. Oprah, if you're listening, you know where we are. You know where you can Come find and us. Come join us. We can get an extra sick. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? We can dream. We can dream. Nothing's too crazy, as well, we this said. Is it. Nothing's too yes, wild. Yes, you can. I'm so happy that I got to sit down with you today. Uh, I've learned so much. I've learned that I need to find my Amazon gladiator pose. Uh huh. Yeah. And I feel like we all need that person in our lives that can tell us, yes, you can. Yeah. But if we don't have that person, we ourselves. can be that person. We can be that person. Be your own cheerleader. Where can we find you on social media? So mostly I'm active on Instagram at Dr. Zoe Williams, but it's the same hashtag on Twitter as well. But I don't often engage with Twitter. Okay, it's not Instagram's very nice the place. place, is it? Instagram's yeah. the place. <laughs> we will find you on there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Zoe. Oh, what a treat. Thanks for listening to Shaping Success, a Simply Be podcast. If you like what you've heard, please give us a follow and a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Shaping Success is a Folding Pocket production.